Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before we start the show, it should be noted that the host of this podcast tends to get a little bit enthusiastic about the subject matter. That's why we suggest that you don't have your volume levels too high. The host provides enough volume as it is. With that being said, listener protection is advised. Let's get on with it. Welcome to Robotech The McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels written by Brian Daly and James Lucino, with your host, JT. Welcome to the episode number three of Robotech, the McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels as written by New York Times bestselling authors Brian Daly and James Lucino, collectively known in the Robotech universe as Jack McKinney. Our executive producer is Mick J. Our official website is www.robotechnovels.com, where of course you'll find all the notes for each and every episode of this podcast. Our official email address, robotechnovels at gmail.com. We are on iTunes, we're on Facebook. Thank you to everybody who has subscribed on iTunes and joined the Facebook page. And let me first start off by saying this podcast is not disappearing. I am more than committed to take this show straight on through all 21 novels that make up the Jack McKinney Robotech story. That being said, the last eight weeks have seen so much in the life of JT. Uh, things from technical issues to re- in recording this podcast, things at work, things in my personal life that have needed my attention. And that will always come first. Uh, when it comes to the technical issues, I actually was able to record an episode, but because of a loose connection between my mixer and my microphone, all you heard was just this humming sound and me barely in a whisper. And it frustrated me to no end because it was the episode was complete and it just frustrated me to no avail to finally say, I got to take a step back and there are some other things I need to take care of. And that's what I've been doing for the last eight weeks. And also amongst, uh, among my many roles, one being a podcaster, I have a new role and that is Uncle JT. That is to my nephew, RJ. Much love to my sister and her newborn baby. Let me tell you something. Holding a baby in your arms, it just puts a different perspective on life, and it is something that, uh, you know, it's just like podcasting for me. You really can't give it the words that do it justice. So uh, that has also occupied my time, and has not given me has not given me a chance to sit down and really do uh, the show that I want to do. And when finally that moment came, I, 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 this is a big show. It's over an hour. You guys know that I don't like going over that time, but 
in this case, since it's the first show back from, I guess, our hiatus, I wanted to give you guys a real, a huge show. We have 30 readings from the Robotech novels, almost an hour's worth of novels, plus we have the big announcement of how all of you, that's right, all you guys and girls listen to me, how all of you can be part of this show, and that will be our side segment. And to finish off the show, uh, we're going to have, I guess the best way for me to describe it is a Jack McKinney moment, and I'm very happy to be able to share it with all of you. And let me say, uh, I wish, you know, I wish that this break would have been shorter, but like I said, life sometimes happens and you got to take care of that. And that's exactly what I did, but I'm back. I am so happy to be back. Uh, behind this microphone, it is just magic for me. And I love, I love being able to do this. I love being able to do this and I missed it a lot. And this, this, this episode is really, it, it's like I said, it's, it's big, it's over an hour, but uh, in this case, I will make the exception. Now, have I been thinking of ideas for the show uh, during my absence? Of course. I, I've got so many ideas in terms of what we can do with this podcast. I've been thinking, I've been kind of mulling the idea of taking the side segments, you know, we talked about in past episodes, like the comic connections and the character biographies, and actually doing them as many podcast and kind of keeping the meat and potatoes dedicated to the novel narration and excerpt readings that by itself and then all the other stuff as mini podcasts and we'll see we'll see how that goes along but uh you know, the last few weeks even though I have not uh have not been doing the actual podcast. I have been working on it. I already have the reading set for episodes four and five, and it's, you know, I'm just moving along. I want to move forward with this. My ultimate goal is to give all you guys and girls a weekly show, and hopefully in 2014, I can begin to do that and implement all the different ideas I have for for this uh, for this podcast because I do want to make it as interactive as possible where you guys and girls get to participate and we'll talk about that later on in the show and uh, ambitious as this may sound I want it to be the ultimate and definitive Jack McKinney Robotech novels experience and I think I think I I think I got the goods to do that and I hope that you uh, you join me along in this journey because it's for me it's it's very special it's very personal and it's very special and very personal for me to be back with this so I just wanted to do this quick introduction because we got a lot to talk about we got so many readings to do on this episode it is episode Episode number three, fireworks, and we will take this quick 30-second break, and we will come back, and when we come back, we'll have our first block of Robotech novel readings and narrations. We'll be right back.
guys and girls for more of Robotech the McKinney Project and it is now time for our first block of Robotech narration and excerpt readings from the novels themselves. If you're following me with the with the book in hand, uh, we are on Robotech novel number one, Genesis, and we'll be covering chapters three, four, five, six, and seven. That is a lot to cover for one episode, but you know, it's our first show since coming back from hiatus, and I definitely want to give the Robotech novel fans their fill. And it's going to be a nostalgic fill, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, it's so much to cover that I've divided it in two parts. This is part one, and part two will come on later on in this episode. Now, uh, when we last left our Robotech novel story, Zor's Dimensional Fortress had crash-landed on Macross Island on Earth, and an expedition is sent to search uh, to search the wreckage, which included Henry Glovel, Roy Foker, Emil Lang, and T.R. Edwards, and chaos ensues. Marines vaporized, Marines dismembered, giant robots, automated defense mechanisms, a warning message from Zor, uh, Lang's eyes losing their very white from them, and, of course, the Zentradi skeleton. And where the fortress can be seen as a miracle for some because it ended 10 years of global civil war, it can, be, it can be seen as a technological wonder because it proves that mankind is not alone in the universe. It's also a political opportunity for those wanting to take power. One of those being Senator Russo, who backs the idea that no expense be spared, that all resources be put forth to rebuild the ship, and that the world should come under one United Earth government, with, of course, him at the very top. And that is exactly what happens. We jump from episode number two, which was 1999. Here, we're in 2009. Ten years have passed. The ship has been rebuilt. There is one United Earth government. Senator Russo is at the top of it. And it happens to be launch day for the Dimensional Fortress, which has been christened the Super Dimensional Fortress 1, or SDF-1 for short. And... We're going to be, you know, we're going to be reintroduced to some characters. You know, Henry Glovel and Roy Foker are there. Plus, we will get to meet some characters that become legendary in the Robotech universe. And their legends or misadventures, you can take either or, begin in this episode. Now, I said it was going to be a nostalgic time. Well, it is. Without, without planning it, and it turned out like this, pretty spooky, but when I finished the readings for this episode, it turned out that it coincided with the very first episode of Robotech the Animated Series, episode number one, Booby Trap. And it was that episode where this crazy kid from Chicago back in 1985 was watching on WPWR-TV and he was seeing what was going on on his television and he said, man, that is cool. That is awesome. And it turned out to be so special that here I am, 25 years later, celebrating one of the enduring legacies of Robotech, and that is the Robotech novel. So I'm sure you're going to remember a lot of the scenes from the excerpts that I'll be reading. It's going to bring back some memories and, you know, on why you became a Robotech fan. So it is my privilege and my pride to be able to do this and present this to all you guys and girls. But without further ado, it's Robotech novels time, baby. Chapter 3. We begin with the following epigraph. 
There's a movie my grandfather loved as a boy, and my father sat me on his knee and showed me when I was a little kid. The shape of things to come. The part that made the biggest impression, naturally, was when the scientist aviator climbs out of his futuristic plane and looks the local fascist right in the eye and tells him there'll be no more war. Babe, how many times I've wished it was that easy. Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, in a letter to Lieutenant Claudia Grant. Now, ten years have passed since the crash of Zor's Dimensional Fortress on Earth. And as foreseen by Senator Russo in our last episode, the world does come under one single government. And every resource is used to rebuild the ship, and it has now become the pride and joy of the new military establishment, the Robotech Defense Force. And now that it's rebuilt, it's time for launching day, and a celebration is in order. Roy Foker, now a lieutenant commander in the RDF, contemplates on the last 10 years in the following excerpt. Fireworks, Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker murmured to himself, neck arched back so that he could watch the bright flowers of light. The gigantic mass of Superdimensional Fortress 1 blocked out much of the sky, but he could still see skyrockets burst into brilliant light above every corner of Macross City. There were banners and flags, band music and the constant laughter and cheering of thousands upon thousands of people. Fireworks instead of bombs. Celebrations instead of battles, Roy nodded. I hope it's always like this. Parades and picnics. We've seen enough war. Macross Island had changed a lot in ten years, all for the better, in Roy's opinion. After the world government made rebuilding the alien wreck its first priority, a bright modern city had been erected around the crash site, along with landing strips used to airlift supplies and equipment construction materials, technicians and workers and their families, and military personnel. A busy deep water harbor had been dredged too. Two colossal aircraft carriers were anchored there, though they were dwarfed by the vessel in whose shadow Roy stood. Flights of helos and jet craft made their passes overhead, rendering salute to the Earth's new defender, Superdimensional Fortress 1. Now, no launch day would be complete without the dignitaries from the world government, which include one Senator Russo and the commander of the SDF-1, Captain Henry Glovel. And as they are making their way to the SDF-1, uh, there's one person that is feeling a little bit left out from all the celebrating, and that is Mayor Tommy Luan. He is the mayor of Macross City, of course, named after the island. And... He is not only, not only kind of a myth for being left out, but he's also thinking about what will be life like after the SDF-1 as he tells one of its constituents in the following excerpt. Of course, SDF-1 was only leaving for a test flight to be followed by a short shakedown cruise if everything checked out well. But the mayor could be right. There was no telling when the fortress might return. Certainly, Matt Cross would never be the same place again. We'll all miss her, Vern conceded, but aren't you proud to see her launched at last? Of course, but if the test is successful, we'll all be unemployed, the mayor burst out. Vern wasn't looking forward to closing down his business either, but he remembered the war very well. He had to admit he liked the idea of the Battle Fortress being out there in space, guarding the planet, a lot better than the mayor seemed to. Vern sighed. A lot of people had forgotten just why Macross City existed, but Vern kept his opinion to himself. The motorcycles and limousine roared by. Big Shot's making their grand entrance, the mayor sniffed. It was well known that the mayor hadn't been invited to any of the important ceremonies. The world leaders were keeping the prize honors for themselves. 
Now, while the mayor may be a little bit better at how things are turning out, rest assured, in the Robotech novels universe, Tommy Luan does have his role to play. Now, where there is a celebratory air outside of the ship, inside the ship, it is an air of preparedness and efficiency. We are introduced to the character of Lisa Hayes, the first officer of Superdimensional Fortress 1. She has made a career out of the military, and not just by being Admiral Hayes' daughter, as the novel tells us. Up on the bridge, Commander Lisa Hayes arrived to make sure everything would be squared away for launching. Admiral Hayes' daughter had always made it a point of honor to show more merit, more skill at her job, and more dedication to the service than anyone around her, so that there could be no question of favoritism when the time came for promotion. She carved out an amazing career for herself. At 24, she'd been made first officer of SDF-1. A lot of that was due, no doubt, to her familiarity with the ship's systems. With the exception of Dr. Lang, no one had such a complete and comprehensive knowledge of the vessel's every bolt and button. But there were her endless commendations and top evaluations as well, and two decorations for courage under fire. Some people thought her too severe, too single-minded in her obsession with duty, but no one accused her of not earning her rank. She paused to survey the bridge, a slim, tall, pale young woman with blonde brown hair that bobbed, confined in graceful locks against her shoulders. Her subordinates were already at their duty stations. Now, along with Lisa Hayes as part of the bridge crew, you have Claudia Grant, Sammy, Kim, and Vanessa. Now, the latter three we're going to get to know more about in future readings and future episodes. For right now, in the following excerpt, we see the contrast between Claudia and Lisa's approach to duty and also to personal matters, and this being that they are best friends. Claudia, you stayed out all night knowing you and Roy both had flight duty today? Duty was everything to Lisa. She had trouble understanding how anyone could be so casual about such an important mission. But there was also something else, something about Claudia's love affair with the handsome heroic Roy Foker. Not jealousy, but rather a feeling of Lisa's own loneliness. It brought out an uncharacteristic confusion to her, a sudden emptiness that made her doubt the principles by which she lived her life. She shied away from it, reasserting control over herself by acting every inch of the first officer. But Lisa wasn't the only one who was angry. Claudia set her hands on her hips. So, what's the big fuss about, Lisa? We won't let it affect our performance on duty. After all, we're not children, and you're not our mother. Lisa felt her cheeks growing red. Your responsibilities to the ship come first, Claudia. Neither one was backing away from the confrontation, and Claudia looked like she was running out of patience. And given her size and temper, and the fact that she was an accomplished hand-to-hand -hand fighter, Claudia was nobody to antagonize unnecessarily. My private life is my own business, nobody else's. Claudia stopped herself just short of some cutting remark. Why don't you try loosening up for change, Lisa, for example? But she got hold of herself instead. Now then, let's get to work, all right? She pointed toward Lisa's duty stations. Get out of here. Lisa hesitated, unused to backing away from a fight, and still angry, but feeling she'd overstepped her authority. Just then, Vanessa said slyly, Lisa doesn't understand about men, Claudia. She's in love with the spaceship. And remember, they are best friends, but hey, best friends fight all the time. So, But uh, she's not going to get anywhere in an argument like this with Claudia Grant. So Lisa drops it, and a new element is thrown into the story. 
And it is a visitor who is attending the launch ceremonies of the original visitor. And in the following excerpt, uh, I think it could best be described as the beginning for one Lisa Hayes and the visitor attending the launch ceremonies. Lisa opened a communication link, resolving to try to smooth things out with her friends. She'd so much wanted the day to be right, to be marked by excellence and top performance. Why couldn't anyone share her drive for perfection? Perhaps she was simply fated to be the outcast, the oddball. Attention, aircraft approaching on course 107, she said coolly. Please identify yourself. A youngish male voice came in response. This is Rick Connor. I have an invitation for today's ceremonies. Invitation number 203. Lisa checked it against another computer display, although she found herself irked by the job. The SDF-1 was set to launch, and she was expected to act as an air traffic tech. But she responded, That's confirmed as an invitation from Lieutenant Commander Foker. Foker. Lisa kept the motion out of her voice and avoided meeting Claudia's eye, finishing, Follow course 5-7 for landing. Roger, the voice said cheerfully and signed off. With all the important things I have to worry about, Lisa mumbled to herself, they also have to saddle me with babysitting the Rick Hunters of this world? Chapter 4 The epigraph is as follows. Alright, you win, big brother. I'll come to your party. I'll even put up with all those military types you hang around with, but try not to make it too boring, okay? Rick Hunter's RSVP to Roy Foker's invitation to the SDF-1's launch ceremonies. Enter Rick Hunter. Young, brash, bordering on in between proud and just plain arrogant. His legend, or misadventures, you can take your pick, begin in the next excerpt. Rick maneuvered his ship smoothly through the traffic, relying not on his computers, but on his own talent and training, a point of pride. He was the offspring of a proud, daring breed, last of the barnstormers, the stump flyers, and seat-of-the-pants winged daredevils. He was 18 years old, and hadn't been outflown since, well, long before his voice had changed from a kid's to a young man's. His plane was a nimble little racer of his own design, a roomy one-seater, white with red trim, powered primarily by an oversized prop fan engine, but hiding a few surprises underneath its sleek fuselage. Rick had named it the Mockingbird, a fittingly arrogant name for the undisputed star of the last of the flying circuses. He tossed a dark forelock of hair back and adjusted his tinted goggles, then went into a pushover and power dive for the SDF-1. This Robotech stuff looked impressive, but maybe it was time somebody showed these military flyboys that it was the pilot that mattered most, not some pile of mere metal. While Rick makes his approach, the festivities continue on the ground, and it is time to introduce one of the fangs of the Defense Force, the Veritech Fighters. And there is no one better else to do it than Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, leader of the Skull Squadron, as the novel continues. And now we present an amazing display of aerial acrobatics, demonstrating the amazing advances we have made through robotechnology. Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, leader of the Veritech Fighters Skull Team, will describe and explain the action for us. Roy made his entrance to enthusiastic applause. 
He was known to and well-liked by most people on Macross Island. Tall and handsome in his uniform, the blonde hair still full and thick, he stopped before the microphone stand. He gave a snappy salute, then fell into parade rest and began his address. Today, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see how we've applied human know-how to understanding and harnessing a complex alien technology. Overhead, a half-dozen swift, deadly Veritech fighters peeled off to begin their performance. Keep your eyes on planes 2 and 4, Roy went on as 2 and 4 lined up for the first maneuver, engines blaring. Flying at speeds of 500 miles per hour, only 50 feet above the ground, they will pass within just a few yards of one another. Robo-technology makes such precision possible. Now before the Veritech pilots can get into their demonstration, Rick Hunter and his Mockingbird decide to disrupt things, much to the disapproval of one Roy Foker as the following excerpt shows us. Roy was just about grinning in spite of himself. People who didn't watch their step every moment were liable to become Rick Hunter's straight men. Roy decided to give him back a bit of his own. You haven't changed a bit, have you, kid? Well, this isn't the amateur flying circus. My men are real pilots. Amateur, huh? Rick drawled. He looked off in the distance and saw the Veritech fighters in a diamond formation for a power climb, preparing to do the bomb burst maneuver. I'm going to have to make you eat those words, Commander. Coming in. Stop clattering around, Rick. Look out! Mockingbird swooped down in a hair-raising dive, barely missing the speaker's platform. So low that Roy had to duck to avoid getting his head taken off. A lot of people in the crowd hit the dirt too, and most of them cried out in shock. Roy caught another glimpse of the pretty young thing in the front row. She seemed thrilled and happy, not in the least frightened. Roy spun as the Mockingbird zoomed off, building on the acceleration it had picked up in its dive. Suddenly, as the little aircraft was safely away from the crowd, covers blew free from six booster jet pods mounted around the turbofan cowling at the rear of the ship, and powerful gusts of flames lifted it into a vertical climb. The crowd went, oh! Leaving streamers of rocket exhaust, the Mockingbird went ballistic, quickly overtaking the slower-moving formation of Veritex. Get out of there, Roy yelled up at him, not even bothering with the mic, knowing it was pointless. Headstrong was a word they'd invented with Rick Hunter in mind. Rick cut in full power, came up into formation perfectly, becoming part of the display as the Veritex completed their climb and arced away in different directions, like a huge version of the afternoon skyrockets. The crowd was applauding wildly, cheering. Roy shook his fist again, furious, but a part of him was proud of his friend. Once Rick is through clowning around and lands, the Big Brother and Little Brother team catch up. No blood relation. Rick does hold some resentment uh, to Roy for never returning to the flying circus he was part of, which was run by Rick's late father. But Roy tells him one of the now famous lines in the Robotech story. This Robotech thing is so important, I just couldn't give it up. It gets in your blood or something, I don't know. Besides Robotech, he also has other interests as the next novel paragraphs show. Roy gave him an enigmatic smile. 
Robot technology has a way of affecting the things around it, sometimes even non-Robotech machines. Rick groaned. Robotech again? Jason, you'll make yourself sick. I don't care, Jason wailed. Maybe you could tie a can of soda to a fishing pole and lure him home, miss, Roy suggested. Minmay turned to him, still definitely keeping the kid from scoring the petite cola. She broke into a winsome smile. She was of Chinese blood, Roy figured, though she had strange blue eyes. Not that he was interested. Claudia would probably take a swing at him and connect if she found out he was roving. Still, something about Minmay's smile made her irresistible. Oh, you're the officer from the stage. You were very, very funny, Minmay giggled, then turned to the little boy sternly. That's it. We're going home. Come on, Jason. Don't make me spank you. She lugged the boy away as the petite cola machine made half-hearted attempts to clinch a sail against all hope. Well, Roy, Rick commented elaborately droll, I see you're still a big ladies' man. While Rick and Roy have their eyes on the girl, in space there are stirrings, changes of the fabric of the space-time continuum that signify the end of a search and the beginning of destiny for a planet. The novel continues. Far out beyond the orbit of Earth's moon, a portentous tremble shook the space-time continuum as if it were a spider web. It was only a preliminary disturbance, yet it was exacting and of great extent. A force beyond reckoning was making tentative contact on a day that marked a turning point in the history of the unsuspecting Earth. Out in space, vast forces were coalescing, Nothing Earth's detectors could perceive yet, though that would happen soon. Soon, but too late for Earth. Contact had been made. An inconceivable gap was about to be bridged. A marvel of science put to hellish use. In deep space, dimensions folded and transition began. Death was about to come calling. Chapter 5 And the epigraph is as follows. From the first, there were anomalies about the situation on the target world, things that gave me pause. The second guessers would have it that I was remiss in not advising caution more strongly, but one did not antagonize Great Britai with too much talk of circumspection, you see, not at least without great risk. Exodor, as quoted in Lapstein's interviews. The crash of the SDF-1 ten years ago was a historic moment for mankind. Ten years later, a new visitor makes its appearance in Earth's vicinity of the universe. But this visitor is in the form of a much greater threat than ten global civil wars, McKinney describes. The stars shimmered and wavered, as if shivering with dread, and well they should. The forces that bound the universe were briefly snarled by a tremendous application of energy. The dimensional warp and wolf pulled apart for a moment. In a precisely chosen zone of space, beyond Luna's orbit, it was as if a piece of the primordial fireball that gave birth to the cosmos had been brought back into existence. Molts bright and hot as novas, infinitesimal bits of the cosmic string were spewed out of the rift in space-time, like burning sparks of gunpowder from some unimaginable cannon shot. The burning detritus of non-space moving at speeds approaching that of light itself, consumed almost as soon as they came in touch with three-dimensional reality. Larger anomalies like furious comets flared here and there in the wash of light. Then there was another explosion beyond description. 
a pure emission of unadulterated hell. It pushed outward from a rip in the fabric of the universe, taking on shape and shedding a raging wave of incandescence as if it were water. The shape became longer, more forceful, menacing. The Zentradi had come at last. The main goals of the Zentradi are conquest and the destruction of anything that gets in their way towards conquest. But this mission is not one of that, but recovery. One that has lasted 10 years for the Zentradi fleet commander, Britai, as the novels tell us. Britai studied the Earth coldly. The finder beam is locked on this planet. Are you sure this is the source of those emanations? His voice was huge and deep, with a resonance that shook the bulkheads. Off to one side, Exidor, Britai's advisor, kowtowed slightly, showing deference from habit even though he wasn't in Britai's line of vision. Yes, sir, I'm positive. Britai pursed his lips in thought. They could have executed a refold. The thought of losing his quarry again was almost unbearable, but Britai avowed no emotion to show. It's doubtful, sir, Exidor said quickly. There was no evidence of a second jump into hyperspace. Savagely, Britai thought again of those traitors to his race and their narrow escape. Hmm, they couldn't have gotten far in their condition, and they would have to land in order to repair the ship. He looked to Exidor. That's a logical conclusion, I think. Exeter inclined his head respectfully. I agree. It would seem very likely, sir. Britai was used to acting on his own instincts and deductions, but it was reassuring that Exeter, the most brilliant intellect of the Zentradi race, was in accord. Britai considered Exeter for a moment, small, almost a dwarf by the standards of their species, and frail into the bargain. Gaunt, with protruding, seemingly litless eyes and a wild thatch of odd, rust-red hair, Exeter was still the embodiment of the Zentradi law and tradition, and more valuable to the towering commander than any battle fleet. Yet with all that, he was loyal, almost selfless in his devotion to Britai. Britai gave Exeter a curt nod. Very well. Dispatch a scout team for a preliminary reconnaissance. In the Zentradi warrior religion, efficiency was a virtue ranking only behind loyalty and courage in battle. The words were scarcely out of Britai's mouth when two of the fleet's heavy cruisers detached themselves and advanced on the unwary planet. While the aliens begin their approach, Roy is giving Rick a hands-on look at one of the Veritech fighters, and we are now introduced to what has become one, if not the most controversial concept in the Robotech novels universe. And yes, at some point we will have an entire segment. Hell, I might even do an entire episode on this subject. But let's get back to our story. He ran his hand along the fuselage. It looks great. How does it handle? Roy thought that one over. Hmm. Well, why don't you climb aboard and see for yourself? You really mean that? Uh-huh. I'll write piggyback behind you. It was, perhaps, bending the rules a bit though familiarization flights were scheduled for VIPs later in the day. Still, a little sample of what the Veritech could do might change Rick's attitude about military service, and the service could sure use a flyer like Rick Hunter. Rick was already scrambling up the boarding ladder, peering into the cockpit. The controls look pretty complicated, Roy called up, but I'll check you out on them. Roy looked down and smirked. I'm not worried. If you can learn to fly one of these things, I sure can. Roy snorted. Don't be so modest. When Rick was in the pilot's seat and Roy in the rear seat, Roy handed Rick a red-visored Robotech helmet. 
Rick turned it over in his hands, examining the interior. Whoa, what kind of helmet is this? What's all this stuff inside? Receptors. They pick up electromagnetic activity in your brain. You might say that the helmet's a mind reader in some ways. The receptors were just like part of the helmet's padding. Soft yielding, no safety hazard. But Rick wasn't so sure he liked the idea of having his head wired. What are they for? For flying a Veritech, buddy boy. You'll still handle a lot of manual controls, but there are things this baby does that it can only do through advanced control systems. Rick hiked himself around in his seat and leaned out to look back at Roy. Look, I saw your guys flying, remember? What's so special about these crates that you have to wear a thinking cap just to steer one? Roy told him. The real secrets aren't supposed to go public until the politicians are through with all their blabbing. But I'll tell you this. The machine you're sitting in isn't like anything humans have ever built. It's as different from Mockingbird as Mockingbird is from a pair of shoes. Because you just don't pilot a Robotech ship, Rick. You live it. Despite the celebration going on, the appearance of the Zentradi does not go unnoticed by the Defense Force. Once word reaches Captain Global, he knows that the fireworks in the sky won't be the only explosions he'll be seeing that day, as Brian and Jim describe. The liaison cupped his hand to Global's ear and said, Excuse me, sir. Urgent message from the space monitoring station. A strange flash of light and an explosion. Tremendous radiation readings accompanied by irregularities in solar gravitational fields. In spite of the warmth of the day, Global suddenly felt cold all over. The same sort of event occurred ten years ago. You know what happened then, don't you? The aide was trying to conceal his fear, nodding. That's when the alien ship arrived. Global assumed the icy calm of a seasoned captain. Better check it out. Come with me. Global was descending the platform steps as Russo announced what a great honor it was to introduce the commander of SDF-1, Henry Global. For once, Russo did not know what to say. Come back here! You have to make a speech, he shouted. Global never even looked around. The time for speeches was over. Well, now the humans know of the aliens' presence in their vicinity of space. But also, Zor's Dimensional Fortress knows that they're here and begins to take actions on its own, much to the dismay of the bridge crew who have no idea what forces have all of a sudden activated their ship, as Jack McKinney describes. Unprecedented, impossible-to-interpret mechanisms had self-activated in the ship's power plant, the great sealed engines that not even Lang had dared open, and the many different kinds of alien apparatus connected to it were doing bewildering things to the SDF-1 structure, as well as its systems, making the humans helpless bystanders. The defense system is activating the main gun, Claudia reported, horrified. Far off at the great starship's bow, gargantuan servo motors hummed and groaned. The huge twin booms that made up the forward portion of the ship moved to either side on colossal cam-like devices. The booms locked into place, looking like a fantastic tuning fork. The ship's reconstruction had the bow high up now, pointed out above the end of Macross Island's cliff line at the open sea. Lisa's mind raced. The main gun had never been fired. No one was even sure how powerful it was. That test was to be reserved for empty space. But if it's salvoed now, the ensuing death and destruction might well be greater than that created by the ship's original crash. At the same time, everyone aboard could feel the super shift shifting slightly on the massive keel blocks, the monolithic rest on which it lay. Warning klaxons and horns were deafening. The SDF-1's aiming its gun, Lisa realized, but at what target? 
Shut down all systems, she ordered Claudia. Claudia, trying the master cutoff switch several times to no effect, looked at Lisa helplessly. It doesn't work! A sudden glare from the bow lit the bridge with red-orange brilliance throwing their flickering shadows on the bulkhead behind them. Around and between the forward booms, tongues of orange star flame were shooting and whirling and arching back and forth. The fantastic energy cascade began sluicing up the booms toward their tips, sparks snapping, seemingly eager to be set free. And still, Lisa could think of nothing she could do. Just then, the hatch opened, and Glovo hurried in so quickly that he bumped his head on the frame. He didn't spare time, or his usual swearing at the people who refitted the largest machine ever known for not providing a little more headroom. Captain, the main guns are preparing to fire! And fire it does. McKinney continues. The Zentradi heavy cruisers, closing in on the unsuspecting Earth, barely had time to realize they were about to die. By some unimaginable level of control, the blinding shaft of energy split in two. The twinned beams hold each heavy cruiser through and through, along their long axes. Armor and weapons in hull, superstructure and the rest were vaporized as the beams hit, skewering them. They expanded like overheated gas bags, skins peeling off, debris exploding outward, only to disappear, blown to nothingness, an instant later in globes of bright mass energy conversions. From his command station, Britai watched impassively, arms folded across his great chest as the project beam displayed the death of the two heavy cruisers. Now we know for sure, the ship is on that planet! This time he didn't bother soliciting Exodor's advice. All ships advance, but exercise extreme caution. The Zentradi Armada took up proper formation, ships of the line moving to the fore and closed on the target world. Now that the game is afoot, Global realizes that the last 10 years have not only meant the end of the Global Civil War and the rebuilding of the SDF-1, but also in preparation for the day where someone would come looking for it as the following excerpt describes his thoughts. Global suddenly felt old, older than the ship, the island, the sea. He wasn't about to speculate aloud, not even to his trusted bridge gang, but he was just about certain he knew. And if he was right, it put the weight of a planet on his shoulders. exactly the way you want things to go on your launch day now, isn't it? But that is science fiction for you. Everything happens at the precise moment to the precise people. And if I could take a moment and give a few comments about Henry Global, let me tell you something. In the Robotech novels, Brian and Jim really hit the nail on with this character because he's in such an unenviable position. He's taking a mile-long space fortress that he doesn't even know will lift off. He has an untested crew, and while he does know something about the enemy, he's never faced them head-on, so he's definitely riding into the unknown, yet even with his misgivings, he is a rock, and he definitely earns the title of Captain, and where we start out the Robotech novel story where it's Zor's Dimensional Fortress, the SDF-1 definitely belongs to Henry Global. So uh, I just wanted to give that comment out because uh, you know, as the story progresses, you know, he, he's just... 
he's constantly put on the spot. He's constantly put into situations that he doesn't want to be in, but he handles it with with grace and with fortitude, and that's definitely admirable qualities of of any captain. But with that being said, we're going to take this quick break, and when we come back, the big announcement about how you guys and girls can become part of Robotech The McKinney Project. We'll be right back. For our side segment, and as I promised at the beginning of the show, this would, would this would be the segment where I fill you in on all the details about how all you guys and girls can become part of this podcast to be the star of the show. I talked about it in episode zero, it, very briefly, and in the development of this show. Obviously, Robotech: The McKinney Project was going to be a celebration of the Robotech novels written by Brian and Jim. The most important aspect of the show is the excerpt readings that I've been doing since episode number one. And I choose the excerpts, you know, you know, try to pick the ones that are the most interesting and keep the story, keep the flow of the story going. And then along with my personal narration, you know, there you have an episode of Robotech, the McKinney Project. But another important factor for me was you, the audience. I wanted to make this podcast as interactive as possible with Facebook, with um, with the blog page, and also the readings. That's right. You doing the excerpt readings here on the show, showcasing your talents. And that is something that I've had in mind since the beginning. Since the beginning, and now I'm going to give you guys the details of how we're going to do this. Is it going to be perfect? Is it going to go out? Is it going to come out as I plan it? I don't think so, and I'm not being negative. I'm just being realistic. There, there will be kinks, you know, in terms of organization of how things done, and you know, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna have to evolve and get better as we move along. But you got to start from somewhere, and I'm very excited with this. Now, um, the first thing you're going to need is a recording device, whether that be a laptop or a regular desktop PC. I have to be honest, I'm not a tablet guy, I'm not an iPad guy or a smartphone guy. I don't know if that can be done. I know that you can record on them, but I don't know if it's going to work with the website that the audio submissions will be going through. And that is www.soundcloud.com. Once again, www.soundcloud.com. Com. It's a really neat website that I happened, uh, I just happened to come across. I registered for it, and basically, what SoundCloud is is a place where you can record 
your readings, you can record your music, you can record your singing, you can record just about anything there. And the best part about it, the t uh, when you sign up, you get two hours free. You don't have to sign up for any of the premium services because I didn't. I get two hours free and that's more than enough. That is way more than enough for readings of the Robotech novels because on an average, a reading can take from 30 seconds to two minutes on an average, three minutes pushing it. So they don't last too long. Now, how can you record your your excerpt reading? Well, you can do it two ways. You can do it through a number of audio programs that are out there. Probably the most known is Audacity. It's a free type, it's a free program that you can download and you could record. You can record your own voice with your with your mic or your headset mic uh, and you know and record it as an MP3 file and there you go. So I will put the link for Audacity on the blog post for this episode. And when it comes to you know the microphone and the headset, uh, I use a microphone headset sometimes or I'll use my podcasting mic. I'm not saying go out there and spend tons of money. You can get a headset microphone uh, for for 10 bucks for 10 bucks. I know that some laptops have uh, integrated microphones. You can definitely use those. Just be careful of the external sounds because those tend to pick up everything. But uh, yeah, you can definitely use those. And a simple headset will do it. So, and, and you don't have to go all professional, you know, like I, you know, I have a mixer, I have a, a microphone. No, you don't have to do all that. I want to keep this as simple as possible. So you go to soundcloud.com, you open up an account and it's free. Don't sign up for the premium services because you don't need that. You get automatically two hours free, 120 minutes free for signing up. And then it's a question of recording or uploading because SoundCloud gives you both options. You can record directly from the site or you can upload your own file from your own computer or device. I do know that SoundCloud does have a mobile app. So if you're a tablet user or a smartphone, uh, iPhone, iPad, all that stuff, you might be able to do it, but I, I haven't read where, you know, how you would be able to do it because I don't, I don't have one of those devices. I have just a basic phone that, you know, that does me fine. Now, when it comes to the readings themselves, I will be selecting them. I will be selecting them and I will be posting them on the official Facebook page and the official blog site on November 18th, 2013, which is coincides with episode number four. These excerpts, which you will be choosing from and they will be numbered, are for episode number six, not episode four, not episode five, because I am already working on those. Episode six, which debuts on December 15th, will be your moment to shine. Now, the time frame for which you get to record and submit the readings will be from November 18th to December 6th. That is three weeks to do it. So I'm giving you a good amount of time in order to, you know, get your reading, get it as you want it, you want it to come out and then submit it to me. Now, when it comes to submissions, 
you will contact me at robotechnovels at gmail.com, our official uh our official email address, and you will provide me the link to your SoundCloud page where you will have your recordings, and I will download them from there. And you know, we'll you know, I'll, I'll you give me the link, I will go to the page, and I will download it. I will download it there. If you email me as an attachment your sound file, the production staff and I have decided that we will delete those emails. We are not going to download anything from emails. Let me make that clear one more time. If you send me your MP3 file attached to your your recording, your reading to the email and not the link to SoundCloud, it's not going to get listened to. It is going to be deleted. That was a decision that the production staff and I came to and I'm I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I just... I don't trust I don't trust downloads on emails uh, very much. Uh, luckily, knock on wood, I've never gotten burned before. But there have been idiots out there that have really tried, and you know they fail miserably. Obviously, but I want to make clear that SoundCloud will be the place to post your readings. Now, there's uh, there's some key elements to recording. And in order to, you know, in order for this to go smoothly, and I'm going to give you guys a rundown of these keys. First, clarity. You got to be clear. I got to understand. The audience has to understand what you are saying, or else I can't use it on the show. If if, if I can't understand it, the audience is not going to understand it. I will try to clean it up as best as possible, but along with the other stuff that I got going on with the podcast and recording stuff and everything, it's not like I'm going to spend an entire night on trying to clean one recording. So try to give me the best recording that you can and as clear as possible. Second key, identification. I need to know who you are, where you're from, and what reading you are doing. So your recordings should start off with, hi, I'm, and you list your name, I'm from this part, and I'm doing reading number whatever it is, because when I post, when I post the readings on Facebook and on the blog, they will be numbered, so if you could put that information before you record, that would be great, I'll remove that for the show, but I'll keep a note saying, you know, this is so-and-so, and from reading the next excerpt and so I uh, you know, so that so that I can identify you. I want to give all the readers all the credit in the world. Next key point, variety. Do as many readings as you want to. Do as many readings as you want to and um what's this called? Because if you stick to one, you know, what happens if 10 other people do the same reading? Reality has to set in. I'm not going to play 10 readings of the same excerpt. It would just destroy the flow of the telling of the Robotech story. I might choose two, three at the most. Three at the most, and that's that's kind of pushing it. I, I, I may just stick to just one. And the reality is, will everybody make it? On to episode number six, if if uh, if we have a ton of uh, a ton of readings, 
you may or may not. That's, that's I'm being honest here. But you have better of a chance if you give me variety, if you give me different readings, you know, different excerpt readings, and it'll definitely better your chances. So, uh, but you have my word on this that we will have a special episode where. It will be nothing but readings, no matter how many repeats, but they will be dedicated to nothing but the readings because no matter what happens, even if you don't make episode six, you will make it onto the show. You have you have my word on it. You have my word on it, and I, I want everybody to be, uh, definitely everybody want, want to be a part of this who participates. So, and the most imp- the most important key of all, Besides clarity, emotion. Put that oomph into it because if you start reading, well, this is the, you know, Brie Tice said attack and uh, no way, no chance in hell will you get on the show. And I'm not asking you to do voices. I'm not asking you to do, I don't do Captain Global's Russian accent. I don't do, you know, I don't do the, you know, I don't distinguish between the female or male voice, though my voice is kind of high-pitched and sometimes gets mistaken for a woman, but that's another story for another day. But no, the key to it is emotion. You make yourself believable, if, if whether it's whether you're reading a part about a man or a woman, you put that emotion in there and the audience is going to believe you. And, and definitely, you know, you got to put that emotion behind it. So, you know, you got to, yeah, I, I I cannot stress enough you know, the the clarity and the emotion part of it because those are the most important keys to recording. So, um, when it comes to uh, what's this called? Uh, once again, the submission deadline will be from November eighteenth to December sixth. December sixth, I cut it off and then put everything together for episode number six, which will be December sixteenth. So. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think I've left anything out. I want to make this as simple as possible. You go to SoundCloud, open your account, you get two free hours, and you start recording. You start recording, and then you email me, rebotechnovels at gmail.com, and you tell me, here's my link to my SoundCloud. I'll go there, download it. And again, I will repeat it for the nth time. If you If you put an attachment... If you put an attachment to um, to your email with your MP3 file, it's going to get deleted. It's going to get deleted by myself or one of the producers, and we're we're not going to download it. So uh, that you know, I I've made that clear. If somebody does it, um, this sounds harsh, but I got no sympathy for you. But uh, but I just I want I want everything through uh, through SoundCloud. I think that's the best way right now that I have found, and I've checked tons of websites to see about you know. And this one turned out to be the best. So, all right. So SoundCloud record, post it to your SoundCloud. Let me know. I go and get it. I put it together. December sixth, the submissions end, and December sixteenth, we have an episode with audience reading. So. I guess that's all there is to be said for um, how this thing is going to work. Like I said, is it going to be perfect? Will there be it? Will, will it be perfect? No. Will there be kinks to work out? Definitely. But uh, but I'm really excited. I really want to see out there that um, 
the the reading talents of my audience and let me tell you because you know even I need a break from the reading sometimes so but I, I am looking forward to it I will be posting more about this on the Facebook page so definitely go there I'll go into each one each what I've talked about here in terms of uh, what's going on and on our next episode November 18th will be the readings that uh, I'll post the readings for uh, that uh, for episode number six. So that does it for this side segment. I am done. And what we'll do is take our 30 second break. And when we come back, the conclusion of our Robotech readings for today. back for our final block of Robotech novel narrations and excerpt readings for this episode. Our first block was sure exciting. Launch day of the SDF-1. We get to meet some new characters. We're introduced to the Thinking Caps, which is a Robotech novel's concept. It's it's only in the novels, and it's, the, it's one of many uh, novels-only concepts that we will see in our journey through all 21 books. And kudos to Brian and Jim for coming up with such a great concept. It, it really kind of, you know, it's, it's a topic of much debate, but, you know, it is what it is. Hey, it's science fiction. I, you know, for me to sit here and debate about it and say, whoa, why should, why should it be in the story? It's in the story. It's in print. And that's the way it goes. And as I said, uh, during the first block of readings, I do plan in the future to do an entire segment on thinking caps or maybe a full blown episode. That's how big of a subject it is in the Robotech novels. And we finish our first block with the SD F1 firing its main gun at the approaching Zentradi fleet and the the misgivings of one Captain Henry Global because he knows what is to come and that's more war. After 10 years of, of since the global civil war now it's a war against an alien armada that really they don't know anything about and it's going to begin uh, a is going to begin a great story in these uh, the Macross saga uh, in terms of the Robotech novels. But our second block is exciting also. We get to relive one of the great moments in Robotech. It is, it is probably, at least I can say for me, the moment where I said, this is something special and... Brian and Jim just describe it so well, and you'll hear some you'll hear some familiar music when it happens. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm enjoying the show so far. So without further introduction, it's Robotech Novels time, baby. Chapter six. We begin with the following epigraph. 
While Captain Glovel gets admittedly deserved credit for his handling of the disaster that day, male historians frequently gloss over Glovel's straightforward statement that if it weren't for the women on SDF-1's bridge, their nerve and gallantry and professionalism, the Robotech War would have been over before had it fairly begun. Betty Greer, Post-Feminism and the Global War our first excerpt is Captain Global taking this new turn of events um, uh, pretty well. And he also finds out that the captain doesn't always have the last say on certain things. Sammy Vanessa Kim. They exchanged looks with one another as Lisa and Claudia traded facial signals. Global was laughing, a deep belly laugh, his shoulders shaking. Claudia and Lisa saw that they were both thinking the same thing. If Glovel, their source of strength and calm, had lost his grip, all was lost. Captain, what is it? Lisa ventured. What are you laughing about? Glovel stopped laughing, crashing his fist against the observation bull ledge. It was so obvious, we should have known. A booby trap, of course. Claudia and Lisa said it at the same time. Booby trap, sir? Yes, it's one of the oldest tricks in military history. A retreating enemy leaves behind hidden explosives and such. He clamped his cold pipe between his teeth. The automatic firing of the main guns means that enemies have approached close enough to be a threat to us. He drew his tobacco bag out of the breast pocket of his uniform jacket. Captain Glovel! Sammy was up out of her chair. Everyone turned to her, wondering what the new alarm was. No smoking on the bridge, sir, Sammy said. Strictly against regulations. Claudia groaned and clapped a hand to her forehead. Lisa reflected. Nothing throws Sammy. I was just holding it. I wasn't going to light it, Glovel said defensively. The unreality of the situation retreated with Sammy's interruption. There were both good things and bad things about having one's bridge crew be like family. But doubts were past now. Glovel barked. Hot scramble all fighters and sound general quarters. I'm declaring a red alert. Another claw of the Robotech Defense Force is the Orbital Armors and its arsenal of ships. They historically become the first Earth military force to engage an alien enemy in space, and as the next excerpt describes, history will not be kind to them with the result. Earth's forces fought with savage determination, but the unevenness in technologies was instantly apparent. Aboard the alien command ship, Pretai studied the engagement solemnly in the project beam images and monitors, listening to his staff's relayed readouts with only a small part of his attention. Very heavy resistance, sir, Exeter observed. Yes, Pretai allowed, but why are they using such primitive weapons? Our lead ships have broken through. It's unbelievable this sacrifice they're making. Some sort of trick, no doubt. Exeter considered that. Yes, it is puzzling. Pretai whirled on him. It makes no sense, then? Even to you? There has to be a reason, but it's beyond me. Surely the Robotech Masters... He was interrupted by an urgent message from the tech at the threat prioritization computers. Commander Britai, two enemy cruiser-class vessels are approaching. They could be the ones who launched the missile bombardment. Britai smiled, but his single eye was chilly. Destroy them! Specially designated main and secondary batteries opened fire. Phased particle beam arrays and molecular disruptors, long-range and fearsomely powerful. Armor 2 was hit on the first volley as hundreds of spears of high-resolution blue fury ranged in on it. 
It tried to evade the barrage. House-sized pieces of armor and superstructure were blown from it. Many of the smaller defending craft were completely disintegrated. Britai, waiting for effective counterfire, lost patience. Perhaps the foe's hesitation to use reflex weaponry fit into some strange plan. But to forego use of any advanced technology to sacrifice troops to this kind of slaughter was perverse. Incredulous, Britai wondered if somehow this victory was going to be far easier than it had seemed when that first mighty bolt rose from Terra. Those idiots behave as though they don't even know how to use their own weapons! Full barrage, all cannon! The Zentrani command ship cut loose again with all forward gun turrets. Armor 2 was instantly holed through in a hundred places, the enemy beams penetrating it like ice picks through a cigar box. Hull integrity went at once, and internal gravity. Hatches and seals blew, and space began sucking the atmosphere from the cruiser, tossing crew and contents around like toys. Still more hits made a sieve of the pride of the Orbital Defense Command and destroyed its power plant. A moment later, it disappeared in a horrendous outpouring of energy while lesser ships all around it met a similar fate. Although a war veteran, Henry Glovel contemplates what is ahead, and in the following excerpt he would want any other alternative than the order he's about to give. But as any seasoned veteran, he knows that the planet is in peril and it is his duty to protect it. Glovel sat in his command chair, Fingers steeple, chin resting on pressing thumbs. I had hoped this moment wouldn't come in my lifetime. SDF-1 kept us from exterminating ourselves and let us achieve a worldwide peace. But now it has brought a new danger down upon us. We face extinction at the hands of aliens whose power we can only guess at. Henry Global's mind ranged back across a decade to that first investigation of the wrecked SDF-1. Miracles have a price, and this one, I think, will be very very high. Claudia and Lisa and the other members of the bridge crew swapped quick worried looks. I had hoped that war was a thing of the past. We all had. Glover looked up from his distraction like a knight at the end of his prayer vigil, ready to take up a shining sword, a gleaming shield. But here we go again, like it or not. He rose to his feet, shoulders back, and a vivid current of electricity that hadn't been there a moment before hummed in the air. Global was suddenly strong as an old oak. All right, give the order to move out. Britai and Exodor are surprised at the look of Zor's reconstructed ship. Despite their initial show of superiority, Britai knows that any enemy with the ship at their disposal makes them a threat, especially with the prize the ship contains. The novels continue with the exchange between the Zentridi commander and his trusted advisor. But what about the crew? Zor's traitors wouldn't just let these creatures have the vessel. Maybe they perished in the fighting with the Invid, or in the crash, Exodor suggested delicately. It was an answer of high probability. Britai saw that at once, chose not to contest it, and congratulated himself on having a friend and advisor like Exodor. Even so, the commander sidestepped the discomforting idea that the primitives were antagonists to be feared. The ship would have been terribly damaged, and these primitives wouldn't have the technology to repair it. This Centrati arrogance of ours gets worse with every generation, Exodor thought, even as he readied his answer. Someday we may all pay for it. I know, sir, but is there any other explanation? It is a Robotech vessel, and we know they have... Reflex weaponry! Precisely. 
and this makes them very dangerous, so we must exercise extreme caution. Britai turned back to the project beam displays, uttering a feral growl. The instruments and transparent bowl rang with it. A command center coordinator's voice came up over the intercom. Target pinpointed, Commander! We're launching fighters! Britai and Exodor contemplated the image of the dimensional fortress. Chapter 7 The epigraph is as follows. If there exists on record a stranger familiaration flight than Rick Hunter's VT Shakedown, I have been unable to find it. Zachary Fox, Jr. VT, The Men and the Mecca With the automatic firing of the SDF-1's main gun, Roy puts on hold Rick's test flight to check out what the situation is, leaving Rick to eventually snooze in the cockpit of the Exhibition Veritech fighter. One little problem arises. Roy Skull Squadron is called for duty to meet the approaching enemy, and Big Brother forgets about Little Brother for the moment. While Rick is relaxing and all the fireworks are going around, as the next excerpt shows, his sleep, and eventually his life, are woken up by the voice of the SDF-1's first officer, who orders him to take off to join the battle. You don't mean me, do you, lady? But just then he became aware of distant explosions, not thunder, but the reports of incoming fire. And there were blazes in the city, and smoke and damage. Crew people were rushing everywhere, fueling and arming and guiding planes, getting them airborne. Meanwhile, up in the air, what were all those intertangled contrails and afterburner glows and explosions and tracers? Huh? What? Rick Hunter asked himself weakly. People were scrambling around the plane in which she sat, readying it. Don't waste any more time, the pale face in the screen scolded. Take off immediately and join your wingmen. The fighter squadron's outnumbered as it is. Rick gritted his teeth. What do you mean take off? The runway's demolished. And so it was. One of the primaries and trotty targets. One of the few to be hit effectively. The young woman on the screen appeared to be counting to control her temper. Runway 2 is operable. You're fully armed and your engines will overheat very quickly at high standby. So prepare for immediate takeoff. Now the next excerpt gives us one of those what-if moments in the Robotech saga. What if Rick had just swallowed his pride? Rick was to admit later that that would have been a very good time to come clean and admit that he had no idea what was going on, that he was a non-combatant and needed to be shown to a shelter. But that would have entailed admitting that he didn't know how to fly the aircraft in which he was sitting, that he couldn't, that he was, in short, nothing but a bystander. A hick, just like the people who gawked up at him at the Flying Circus. And when you regard yourself as the greatest pilot in the world, an admission like that is extremely difficult. Besides, there was that irritating female on the screen. Well, okay, if you insist. Rick drew a deep breath, took the controls and gave himself a quick run-through, remembering all the stuff that Roy had told him. He waggled rudders and played around for a second, then increased throttle, taxied out, and stood the fighter kneeling on its tail, like a meteor in reverse. A late Zentradi missile blew a hole the size of a city block where he'd been parked a few seconds before. He was hoping the ground crews had all gotten clear as the Veritech responded to his demands for speed. Wow, the proverbial bat! He adjusted wing sweep and camber and angle of attack, going ballistic, 
wingtips leaving wispy lines of contrail like spider's thread. And though he would never have admitted it, he was more than a little intimidated. He was riding a rocket. He punched a hole in a cloud, then found himself in the middle of a vast, swirling, gladiatorial combat. The biggest dogfight since the close of what they called World War II. Whoa! Well, Rick finally gets to test fly of air attack, but right into battle. Eventually, he does join up with Roy, so in a sense, things do go as they were originally intentioned. Rick and Roy up in the sky together, as McKinney describes. Hey, Foker, would you mind telling me what's going on around here? Roy had just finished dusting a bogey off of Scullade's tail. He switched the communications screen over to ship to ship and was, he admitted, not at all surprised to see Rick Hunter's face. How's it feel to be a fighter pilot? What are you talking about, big brother? I'm not a fighter pilot. In fact, I... Ah! That last, as a wash of light came through Rick's canopy, and Roy's screen dissolved in a storm of distortion. There had been explosions just before the cutoff. In fighter jock's lingo, he tuned out. Tuning out was terminal. But Roy cut in maximum thrust, checking his situation displays, heading for his friend's location. Hold on, Rick, I'm coming. The Veritech's thrust pushed him back, deep into his seat. Roy felt tremendous relief when he sighted VT-120 flying level and unharmed. Roy caught up and fell in on Rick's wingtip. You weren't it. It was just a close one. You all right? The alien that had come so close to nailing Rick was coming around for another try. Woo! Yeah, I'm okay, Rick decided. Roy moved into the lead just a bit. The enemy fighter was closing fast. Combat flying scary for everyone first time out, he said. You'll get used to it, though. It's not that much different from the good old days at the flying circuits. So saying, Roy thumbed the trigger on his control stick and sent two air-to-air -air stilettos, zooming to score direct hits on the invader and blow it to flaming bits. Yeah, but I never got shot at in the circus, Roy. Funny, but now the flying circus seemed like another life, a million years ago. You'll get used to it. Just tag along with me and we'll start on your on-the-job training, if you can keep up with me. The old smirk was back on Rick's face. If? I'll do my best not to leave you in my backwash. The backwash talk comes back and bites Hunter right in the ass as the enemy takes him out. And he's headed for a fatal crash landing towards the SDF-1. Lisa Hayes, thinking him just another combat pilot, orders him to change to configuration B. For Rick, that must mean befuddled, as he has no clue what the commander is talking about. What happens in the next excerpt can only be described as classic Robotech. You don't know? This one must have really lost it. Complete panic. Listen, pull down the control marked B on the left side of your instrument panel. The ground was very near. Rick, dizzy and almost unconscious from the G-forces, somehow guided his hand to the knob in question having a little trouble sorting it out from an identical one next to it marked G, moving it down its slot. The Veritech abruptly slowed in its tailspin, stabilizing, beginning to level off. At the same time, Rick could feel the entire ship start to shudder and shift, its aerodynamics changing in some way that he couldn't comprehend. He could feel vibrations as if the fighter was changing. What's it doing? The fighter was still descending. The streets of Macross City loomed up before the canopy. Rick had been a pilot long enough to know that since its flight characteristics had changed so dramatically, there was no other answer except that the shape of the Veritech had somehow altered. 
What he didn't realize and couldn't see from the cockpit was that the ship had begun undergoing a process Dr. Lang had dubbed Mechamorphosis. It was no longer configured like a conventional fighter, but had instead gone to Guardian, G-Mode, on its way to be. In this transitional state, it resembled a great metal bird of prey, an eagle with sturdy metal legs stretched to set down and wings deployed, human-like arms and hands outstretched. But before Rick could figure out what had happened, or the fighter could complete the shift to B, the Veritech crashed into the upper floors of an office building at an intersection in Macross City. The Mechamorphosis, what will become the standard word for all the Veritech Mecha in the Robotech novels universe. In our final excerpt for this episode, Shit is about to get real for one Rick Hunter, and ironically, his days of hotshot and certainty, well, let's just say, are over. Rick Hunter could still feel the plane shifting, changing all around him. In fact, in some way he couldn't figure out, he could sense it, could actually feel it. Rick sat where he was, realizing he didn't know how to eject. Even if the system was a zero-zero type that would let him survive a standstill ground-level ejection, which was far from the case. It felt as if the crazy Robotech fighter was coming to a stop. He readied himself for a quick escape, not wishing to be in the neighborhood if a few tons of highly volatile jet fuel suddenly took a notion to catch fire. But the Robotech ship had one last surprise for him. The relatively smooth slide became a lurch as the plane snagged on some final obstruction. The fighter heaved, and Rick's helmeted head slammed into the instrument panel. If he hadn't been wearing the flight helmet, it would have been the end. As it was, he saw stars and nearly lost consciousness. But the Veritech was unhurt. With a creaking of girders and the racket of tons of rubble being moved, the machine began to extricate itself. The mechamorphous to B mode was complete, and the fighter was now a battleoid. It looked for all the world like a man in armor a super-technological knight 60 feet tall. The electric Gatling gun that had been pad-mounted under the Veritech's belly was now aligned along its right arm, the giant right hand gripping it like an outlandish rifle. The cockpit section was unrecognizable, now incorporated in the turret-like helmet, the battleoid's head. Its visor swung this way and that, taking in the situation, seeing the explosions of the dogfight continuing high above. The Battleoid knew the enemy was there. It was ready to do what it had been designed to do. It awaited orders. Rick shook his head groggily. What do you know? I'm alive! Then he saw that something was wrong with his perspective. That it was high above the street. That there were things about Robotech too astounding to believe. He saw the distant air engagement too. Somehow, Rick knew, deep down, that life was never going to be the way it had been 15 minutes ago. Things had changed forever. And indeed, things will never be the same for one Rick Hunter. And this is this is the beginning of his Robotech journey. And the kid that you hear right now in, in the readings that we did goes through such an evolution that it's going to be it's going to be fun to read about because it's it's going to involve so many things and if you thought this was something for him it's it's only going to it's only going to it's only going to grow from here so uh looking forward to uh to 
you know, talking about and reading excerpts of with his, uh, with this character's evolution, along with all the other characters in the Robotech saga. But uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, the readings that we had today. It was almost an hour's worth, and you guys know me. I don't want to do more than an hour's worth of show, but I figured since it is the first show back in, in eight weeks, I wanted to give you guys as much as I could, and I wanted to finish this episode on, on a, I guess what you can call a Jack McKinney moment, specifically Brian Daly and James Lucino. Jack McKinney was not just a pseudonym for two authors. It was a pseudonym for two great friends. And I want to give a shout out to Lucia Robson, who I guess there's no better phrase to put it. She was Brian Daly's soulmate. And Wherever Brian is right now in that path to the light, I'm sure that is still the case. And she shared something on her Facebook page that really touched me. And I I, I contacted her and she, I asked her, was it okay if I shared this on the podcast? And she said, go right ahead. She even offered me to send copies of the Robotech novels if I didn't have them. Bless her heart. I have an entire bookcase full, so I, I was good, but that was so sweet of her. And what I wanted to share with you, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a story about Brian and Jim and really what their friendship was all about. And it, it reads the following. One more post about Brian Daly and his friend Jim Lucino. Today I received the box of eight CDs from Books in Motion. They contain the recorded version of Smoke on the Water the first novel in the four-volume series, Gamma Law. The other three will follow. Here's the backstory. Brian intended it to be one book, and he worked on it for 10 years. He had about 1,600 of a projected 2,200 manuscript pages written when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. One day he told me that Jim had offered to finish the book for him. Brian said that that was like your best friend offering to raise your 12 orphans when you die. He was only half kidding. After Brian's death, Jim and their editor, Owen Locke, spent a day in his office gathering the various drafts of the manuscript. The floppy disks, hundreds of Pentaflex folders, yellow legal pads full of notes with so many footnotes Brian used different colors to categorize them. They managed to recover what was still on Brian's old computer. Jimmy took all of that, made sense of it, and finished the story. I have no idea how much time and creativity Jim put into that project, but when the time came to publish it, he insisted that Brian's name be the only one on it. If I ever need a definition of friendship. And that was the post. See, this is why I do what I'm doing. Yes, it's about the Robotech novels. Yes, you know, it's it's an incredible story that Brian and Jim told, and we were very lucky as fans that they took this thing and said, hey, let's see what we can do with it. And some 25 years later, this crazy kid from Chicago is here you know, talking about it and everything. But more than anything else, this, this podcast is, is for Brian and it is for Jim. And I'm very... The novels have a very very personal story with me and I I will share it at some point with you all when when I am comfortable but 
let's just say that it made a lot of insanity, a lot of insanity at my life at, at the ages of 13, 14, 15. It, it made it a lot easier and that I got to actually meet Jim Lucino, that I actually got to talk to him and interview him. You know, I can never thank, I can never thank him nor Brian enough. And this is, and this is just one of the many ways I can say thank you to those guys. And, you know, Jim, if you're listening right now, and Brian, if you're listening too, wherever you're at, uh, hey, this is all for you guys, man. You guys rock. And uh, I think Robotech was very fortunate to have you be able to tell the story in a way that no one else has been able to in in the almost 30 years that Robotech has been around. That Now, I always used to say that you guys came in a close second to the series. You know, after getting myself deep into this project, I realized that the Robotech novels are right up there with the original 85 episodes. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just a crazy kid from Chicago doing this podcast, but I am having the time of my life. So thank you guys. And I'm sorry if I, you know, if I get a little bit emotional, but, uh, that's, you know, that's how much this project means to me and being away from it for so long. Trust me, guys and girls that I have missed it because this is home. This is home. Home is where the heart is. And my heart is definitely in this podcast. And I look forward to giving you guys more and more episodes and to be more consistent. And my ultimate goal is to give you guys a weekly show. And I'm going to, I'm going to push in hard for that. And I can't wait. I can't wait for all, you know, people who want to be a part of the show to submit their readings. I might do a mini podcast where, you know, I'll just explain that in the coming weeks. And I'm really looking forward to it because I want this to be the most interactive experience possible for fans of the Robotech novels. And I definitely want to make this the the ultimate and the definitive Jack McKinney experience. So uh, once again, thank you to everyone who has supported me with this podcast, even during my absence. It is great to be back and we just move forward. We just move forward from here. So guys and girls, it's been a great episode. I know I've gone over an hour and I I apologize for that, uh, but uh, it's been a great episode, and we got we got excitement, we got we got the metamorphosis that that great moment in Robotech story as told by Brian Daly and James Lucino. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing from you guys about this episode and episode number four will be coming on Monday, November 18th. Also, check out the Facebook page, check out the blog, www.robotechnovels.com for all the updates. You can drop me a line at robotechnovels at gmail.com and we're just going to move forward. We're going to have fun with this. So remember, it's Robotech Novels time, baby! We'll be seeing each other in two weeks, guys and girls. Take care. Thank you for listening to Robotech The McKinney Project. Robotech The McKinney Project is produced by McJ, hosted by JT. Robotech is a trademark of Harmony Gold USA. Sorry, can't do nothing about that, guys and girls. See you next show. Bye-bye!